are you saying then, Tom, we should have suffered the consequences really as an economy and we would probably inevitably have headed into some kind of a very deep recession, maybe even a depression, and we would have to just clear everything out and there would be at least massive short-term humanitarian pain. Are you saying that's what we should have faced? Well, I don't necessarily think that's what would have happened. If there wasn't going to be a massive bailout, I don't think you would have had these these ham-fisted general lockdowns of, of all of society. I think that then, you know, a governor would have had to say, well, um, I'm going to wreck my economy if I do this. Mm. Maybe I should take a more focused approach and protect the elderly, protect the people who are most vulnerable to this. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Tom Mullen is the author of the new book, An Anti-State Christmas, and several other books. His writing has been featured on Newsweek, The Huffington Post, The Washington Times, and other outlets, and he has made guest appearances on Fox, Freedom Watch, Free Talk Live, and numerous other shows. As we celebrate the season of Christmas, Mullen asked this penetrating question in his An Anti-State Christmas. How would Jesus handle the new normal of government lockdowns and vaccine mandates? How should Americans, Christians and non-Christians alike respond themselves? All this and more can be found in his concise look at history's most famous birthday from a perspective the powerful don't want you to know about, Mullen says. You may or may not agree with Mullen's perspective, but it's worth looking at what's happening again in places like New York City with lockdowns, shutdowns and COVID mandates. Mullen sees disaster in many places and parts and thinks America and the world's outstanding debt will eventually come crashing down among us. Tom Mullen is my guest coming up in a wee moment. You know, obviously this cannot end well. Um, When it will end depends on a lot of things. You have to remember, you know, in a global economy, we have other governments around the world behaving much the same way. And uh, a lot of this depends on people accepting the dollar. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Did you receive a call or message that mentioned social security and demanded immediate action? Did the caller know your social security number or other personal information and tell you that your social security number had been used in connection with the crime? Did you feel worried that your social security number might be suspended, your bank account might be frozen or seized, or you could be arrested? That is not the Social Security Administration. Social Security will not threaten you, demand your personal information or instant payment, email or text you pictures or documents, or use a real government official's name to gain your trust. Social Security does not accept payments by gift card, prepaid debit card, internet currency, or by mailing cash. Criminals use these forms of payment because they are hard to trace. Do not be fooled. Hang up. Ignore them. Report this criminal activity to the Social Security Administration Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. 
Well, I hope you're all well making plans for Christmas. It's just a lovely and beautiful time of the year. One of my favourites as we celebrate it here in New York and New Jersey. As always, a lot of fun to be celebrating in American fashion, adding a few touches from our native Ireland, including, believe it or not, my world-famous Irish coffee. You can check in with me sometime for the recipe. You'll find my interview with Tom Mulling coming up in a wee moment, timely and thought-provoking. He raises the questions we may have overlooked as we brace for the next mandates coming up with COVID. And of course, let's not forget the war on Christmas. Stay well, and it is grand to have you back. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Hello, Tom Mullen, and welcome to my show. You're in a little bit of a fighting mood these days as we get into the uh, Christmas and holiday seasons. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm I'm doing okay, and thanks for having me on. I guess I'm always in a fighting mood when it comes to the government. Uh, it, it, it's been provoking me for most of my life, and especially now. Why now, of course, is because we've got into Christmas and the recurring nightmare, the war on Christmas, as it has become known. And you've written about this, but what are you seeing this year that's fresh and new, maybe, on the war on Christmas well, of course, you know, the left has never liked Christmas much as far as the meaning of the holiday, which is celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. They've always wanted to secularize it, um, get us all to say happy holidays or whatever, whatever. Um, but of course, last year they had a real opportunity with this virus and their completely ineffective methods of fighting it, namely locking people down in their homes, closing their businesses forcing them to wear a mask, none of which work, by the way. There's no science behind any of that. Uh, but they, they've got people to, to not be able to, to celebrate Christmas in general, at least the people who paid attention to them. But this year, it's a little bit different. You know, Now they have this vaccine that works about as well as the lockdowns do from what we can see so far. That doesn't say there's no benefit, but you know, it's, its efficacy is in question. And uh, I think they perceive they can target their political enemies now. And I think they're mistaken in their belief that it's just Trump supporters, let's say, that uh, uh, oppose these vaccine mandates. There's even people who uh, have got the vaccine who oppose them on principle, um, but they feel like they can target their enemies and ruin Christmas for them. So this year, it's the vaccine that really comes into play as regards the war on Christmas. And of course, the other usual targets, let's not forget, people objecting to beautiful nativity scenes, neutering the whole spirit of Christmas. I see Starbucks got into the game early again this year with its cups. No mention of Christmas, no mention of any holidays. It's, it's sad. Yeah. And I guess what I'd like to say is if these people were being honest about their intentions, it would be one thing because... Um, you know, they say, well, we just don't want to offend people who aren't Christian. And that's fine. I mean, I'm not offended when somebody wishes me happy Hanukkah or happy Kwanzaa. I mean, my reply to everybody is thank you. Same to you. That just seems, you know, like a layup to me, but they're not really honest. They, they don't mind if, if any other religions are, are celebrated just Christianity. And that's where I mean, it's so apparent that I don't feel like I have to say it to your audience, but uh, uh, that's my objection to this whole, you know, trying to take Christ out of Christmas. 
they seem to be ramping it up in the past decade or so. Why is it so intense in recent years? This didn't occur in America, at least 40 or 50 years ago, or am I missing something? Well, I mean, I don't remember from when I was a kid. I'm 56 now, and I wasn't really politically aware until about the turn of this century. And uh, what really got me my ire up was the George W. Bush administration and and its war on uh, civil liberties and and its war in Iraq, which I I vehemently opposed. But after you know he was got out, and you know they elected Obama, supposedly to not be George W. Bush, he went in and did all the things Bush did times 10. And then, you know, we had this whole kind of cultural revolution begin during his administration where, you know, the left hasn't changed since 1789. It's always the French revolution all over again. We've got to tear everything down. We've got to rename everything, take down the statues. This is nothing new. It happened in Russia in 1917. It happened in China in the 1950s and 60s. Um, you know, they, they want to tear down civilization and remake it in their utopian image. And everywhere this has been tried, of course, there's been starvation and bloodshed, but uh, it's going to work next time, I guess. So I'm trying to understand why you're tying the uh, vaccine mandate with the war on Christmas. On one level, I get it. If you're not vaccinated, you may not get into public places. Is that where you're coming from this at? Well, yeah, I mean, there's there in one case, they... Um, are doing that. On the on the other hand, they're also saying, well, you know, even if you are vaccinated, you ought to be careful. So I, I don't know what that how those two things are supposed to uh, go together. Um, but it, you know, in general, they want us to, and and I, I guess I should say they themselves look at the government as a god, and all of its edicts are 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 now you know religious principles. I mean, the evidence is there that perhaps the vaccine isn't everything we hoped it would be, uh, but they don't care about that. This is a, an article of faith. And when you don't take the vaccine, you are telling them that that you're committing heresy. You're you're not listening to uh, you know the commandments of the new God, which is the government. With the spike in COVID in the past few days, God forbid, they may even clamp down on church services for Christmas. That's a that's not a remote possibility in my thinking. Yeah, and I don't know that they necessarily are saying, "Hey, let's do all this to go after churches," but it's a nice bonus for them. You know, those are the people that are in church for for the most part who who they think are their political enemies. Um, again, I don't think that they're they're completely correct in their estimation, um, but that's that's why you know that's why it's another check mark for them is like, yeah, we're going to close the churches, not the liquor stores. Uh, not, you know, the big box retailers or our corporate friends who give us all this campaign money, uh, but small businesses, churches, all the places they think that uh, people who have the wrong political ideas might be found. It's a religious persecution that's going on here. Well, I, again, I, I don't know that that's their primary goal, but it's a bonus, um, you know, and certainly, you know, the, long before Karl Marx, the left had a problem with religion. Um, you know, as like I said, the French Revolution showed us, and it always has. Uh, Karl Marx called it the opiate of the masses, but really, it's a competitor to the new religion. And the new religion is Saint Faust, 
Fauci and all his angels and saints <laughs> issuing proclamations from the experts that we're all supposed to say yes, sir, and follow, even if the facts just flatly contradict what they're saying, even if their own statements now are flatly contradicting what they themselves said three weeks ago or three months ago, you know, we're just supposed to obey. So it's, you know, th this is anti-American and of course, anti-Christian as well, and uh, anti-religion and anti-freedom. Are you anti-facts? No, not at all. I mean, I, my mother is uh, going to be 90 next July and um, taking all the available data at the time into consideration and her much higher risk than myself or, or anyone in my family, uh, we went ahead and got her vaccinated, you know, thinking that this was going to at least keep her from getting a severe illness. Now, there was a period my mother was staying with us where we all got COVID-19 and did our best to avoid her, but she didn't catch it then. I don't know what her immune system have made is made of, but um, you know, she seems to have been resistant. When you listen to people who have some common sense, uh, they advise older people to get vaccinated. But then as you go down to the younger cohort, it's less important in terms of picking up COVID. Yeah. And this is what's so dishonest about what you see in the media. I mean, You'll see a headline that says, "Yes, children can get co or children can be hospitalized with COVID too." Okay, yeah, and children also get struck by lightning every year, right? But not very many of them. I think the number is in the hundreds of children who've been hospitalized. I'm not sure. The last I checked, they had never confirmed a single case, not a single case of a child spreading this virus to an adult. Yet they've still got the masks in school. They're they're still you know ready to close down schools at a moment's notice. You know, there's, there's a disconnect here. These people are either incredibly stupid or sinister or both. And, you know, whatever it is, the results are the same. Well, we may have to deal with this monster and the government's approach for a long time to come because I heard on the radio this morning, a, a medical expert was asked, will COVID ever disappear? And he says, no, we blew it. We, we, it's, it's going to be around forever. Well, it was going to go be around forever when the first person got vaccinated or, I mean, uh, infected. I mean, it's a highly vir virulent virus. These things don't go away. None of the other coronaviruses have. And the fact that we're heading into a second flu season or we're in a second flu season, I should say, where the peak is over for many states, by the way, like in Florida, um, that we're still laboring under this delusion that somehow we're going <laughs> to stamp it out. Uh, we need to protect people who are vulnerable, as you said, and we need to get on with our lives and get the government out of our lives and stop trying to help. I mean, you know, th this is nothing new. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a, a lot of people, and I've said this before, were horrified about the results of Afghanistan. We were there 20 years, uh, you know, we thousands of American lives, hundreds of thousands of foreign lives, trillions of dollars. And what was the result? Nothing. It's exactly the same as when we went in. And I guess what I'd like your listeners to hear, your viewers, this is not an aberration. I mean, 50 years after the war on drugs started, they, they declared an opioid epidemic. That's the government's own words, okay, for how they did fighting the war on drugs. How about education? 40 years of the Department of Education. How is that working out? 
it's always the same. The TSA is still never caught a terrorist. It's still around. And if we allow this, this war on COVID is going to be around 20 years later, never having had a single success. We have to stand up and resist this peacefully, but we've got to resist it. So peacefully, but rise up and resist it. Absolutely. I um, spoke to somebody before we went on the air and he told me he didn't want to be quoted on this, but I was asking him for his views on the war on Christmas and what he said was revealing pretty um, successful businessman. And we just leave it at that war on Christmas. He said, how about war on everything between Sleepy Joe and the Blasio? They talking about the mayor in New York. Uh, I swear they just want the rats and the homeless to occupy New York. It's why I moved to Westchester. I feel like I was in Nazi Germany. And I say that with all the understanding and gravitas of a man whose relatives were in concentration camps in the 1940s. This vaccine and mask nonsense is pretty much as bad as wearing a Jewish star. I'm sick of it. Oh, yeah, he's absolutely right. And, you know, I mentioned the George Bush administration back when, um, you know, the Patriot Act came out and and the mass surveillance started and, and all these circumventions around the Bill of Rights began. Uh, people like me were screaming, someday they're going to turn this against us, not the terrorists, to the extent it wasn't already against us. And now they've done that. You know, they've declared a war on white supremacists or whatever fever dream that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're fighting against at the moment. And this is all going to be directed inward instead of outward. It's terrifying. Um, we, as I said, you know, the word no goes a long way. And that's what I tried to show in my book is that you know what your local pastor might be telling you. He didn't turn the other cheek and, and stay, you know, stand by for government oppression when the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to impose and trick him with you know silly regulations about washing your hands or or not healing somebody on the Sabbath. You know, he lit right into him and he wasn't nice about it either. So, you know, he spent his ministry resisting, you know unnecessary and counterproductive laws. He went up against Pilate, refused to testify against himself. This was a man that fought government oppression as well as saving people's souls for his whole ministry. And this is all in your new book, which is out in time for Christmas. Yeah, it's called an anti-state Christmas. And it does talk about um, you know, the fact that, that Jesus was a um, opponent of uh, government oppression. He flouted bad laws. He didn't like corruption. You know, when he kicks the... Uh, the money changers out of the temple, people don't realize, you know, that the Jews were required to go and make a sacrifice and they had to buy the animals from the people in the temple. So this was more than just, you know, I think the left would like it to be anti-capitalist. No, Jesus is very pro-capitalist in his parable, but he, he didn't like people being forced to uh, buy somebody's products. And gee, I wonder how that could be relevant now, Big Pharma. You've been working on this book uh, for, for quite some while. So can you just give us more of the details inside of somebody picks up a copy? Yeah, well, it goes through some of what I just mentioned. Uh, it, we have a pope now that's you know out there railing against capitalism. And of course, for a long time, the left has wanted us to think Jesus is a socialist, except the inconvenient fact is the heroes in his parables are often capitalists and property owners like the, uh, and I, I'd love to read this one uh, very short passage. Um, this comes from uh, Mark 21, 33, I'm sorry, Matthew 21, 33, Jesus says, here another parable. 
there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to the husbandmen and went out to a far country. So that parable, you know, goes on to show that these husbandmen who were renting this land, um, you know, they 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 renege on their agreement. They won't pay the uh, the owner of the vineyard his part of the profits. They even kill his son when he tries to collect them. But notice what the 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 uh, owner of the vineyard did. He added his own capital, his labor, his materials, and turned the vineyard from something that was just a plot of land into a capital good. That's the definition of a capitalist. Mm -hmm. And he's the hero. And he's going to kick out uh, the Bolsheviks who try to seize his land from him, uh, you know, on, on the idea that just their labor entitles them to it. Um, so, you know, again, I don't want to take this too far. Jesus was not, you know, um, telling an economic uh, tale here. He was telling a spiritual one. But these are not the literary tools that a socialist would use to make his point. You know, obviously, he's affirming uh, private property and and um, and uh, capitalism. And 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 the book doesn't stop with the New Testament. I mean, there's some lighthearted stuff in there. Uh, there's a part that looks at some of the Christmas specials, um, the classics uh, like Little Drummer Boy and uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Looks at uh, It's a Wonderful Life with from the perspective that Old Man Potter is actually the hero. Um, it's got a long ending chapter about what you know Jesus might do uh, in the face of these lockdowns and mandates. Um, and it's even got a, a, a twas the night before new normal Christmas. So there's a few laughs. There's some serious parts. I think everybody will like it. And the best part about it is it's free. At least the ebook is free. If you go to my website, TomMullenTalksFreedom.com, you can download a free copy of the ebook. And uh, there's also a link there if you want to buy a very inexpensive paperback copy and give it away as a stocking stuffer. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Tom Mullen, who has come out with a new book for Christmas, an anti-state Christmas in this season of peace, love and joy. But we'll get on with the fine business of celebrating Christmas, come what may. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. You've been published in many places over the years and have done different TV and radio appearances, so you have strong credentials in this area uh you mentioned the pope you mentioned christianity are you i'm going to assume a roman catholic i was brought up catholic i i've been down a lot of roads with um with the gospel stories and and spirituality so um i looked at the gnostics i've read all the gospels even the ones they didn't let in <laughs> in the council of nicaea mm -hmm. so i think there's a powerful message there and even for people who don't believe Jesus was a divine being like Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, did not, obviously we know, um, you know, there's still a, a great, um, moral, uh, message there. I mean, Christianity really took, uh, the, the civilized world out of the warrior culture and into the culture where freedom is possible, 
where it's wrong to go and make war against a neighbor just because they're not your own tribe, where, I mean, we never would have abolished slavery without Christianity because previous cultures always considered it okay to enslave people as long as they were, you know, a different country or a different race or a different city. Um, You know, Jesus came along and changed all that saying, no, it's always wrong. Uh, So, um, you know, you should love all your neighbors as yourself and preach this gospel to all the nations of the world. So you don't have to be a believer to uh, think this is, you know, a pretty good idea and yeah. a much better thing to have faith in than the government. But are you a practicing Christian? Do you belong to a denomination? I don't really belong to a denomination, but I um, have a very elderly mother who needs to go to church. So I often go to yeah. the Maronite church um, uh, in our neighborhood where the, the pastor is very old school, um, not not your your class, your you know, liberal pastor you might have telling you to take all these orders and, you know, and not put up a fuss. Yeah, you, you've raised a lot of good points there, but, you know, Christianity, and of course, it, it it led ultimately to the blossoming of Western civilization, warts and all, um, and, 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 of course, inspired the freedoms we see now in America. And you mentioned Pope Francis. So are you suggesting he's a communist or a socialist? I would have thought he had difficulties with the excesses of capitalism, but he doesn't entirely knock capitalism. That would be my read on it. Well, he has said that Marx was wrong. That's about the only statement that he's he said that um, would say he's not a Marxist, okay? Mm-hmm. But he um, knocks the so-called excesses of capitalism to the extent that he's, his statements are indistinguishable, at least from socialists. And, you know, in my book, Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From?, I, I say that you know Karl Marx was influential, but if you really want to understand the left, you should really read a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, particularly his discourses on inequality and um, the social contract, obviously. And if you read that, read his arguments, read his statements, you'll hear the exact same words coming out of Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, you know, everybody on the left today. They've never gotten past that. They have a um, a deep, deeply held belief there's something wrong with private property. Okay. And as far as ex- there is no such thing as excesses of capitalism, if you define capitalism as private property and voluntary exchange, okay, there are, there are no excesses. The excesses come when you start intervening, you start bailing people out who should lose money under that system, like they did with Goldman Sachs and others back in 2008. Um, and you know, when you start applying government force to tilt the, the playing field and let people keep the profits and suffer none of the losses, that's not capitalism. If that's what the Pope is um railing against, then he, you know, needs to redefine his terms. Well, we could call them the abuses of capitalism, and you you describe ones about bit the bailouts, and you know, we could have a debate about that, and we could have a we could have a debate about was the uh, propping up of the U.S. economy with $6 trillion to come out of this COVID pandemic economy. Many would say that, yeah, we had to do that on the left and right. Yeah, well, I mean, no, I, I don't agree that we had to do that. That's number one, if you want my opinion. You don't believe, we don't believe we had to bail out anybody during the- No, and, and you, you have to realize that okay, we're supposed to have a federal system, right? Where this was left to the states and those decisions were left to the states. All that the uh, the federal government did was make re- recommendations. But by, by printing all this money and handing it out, you took away the accountability. 
So, okay, if you're going to leave this to New York State, where I live, and Governor Cuomo wants to, at the time, wants to shut us down, then, of course, we should have suffered the consequences of that, not made somebody in Montana um, pay for us to stay home. I mean, there's just yeah. no justification for that. Um and, you know, look at where all this wealth went. You know, I, I think mm. the average American got $3,000. Okay. The average income is like $60,000. The average expenses for the American householder in the fifties. So obviously this didn't benefit anybody. It was, it was a token check sent out to people and a lot of rich people got richer. A lot of people who would have um, maybe suffered and gone out of business at the top were, were propped up. So th this is just terrible. And it has nothing to do with free markets. That's that not a free market phenomenon for the government first to close businesses and then pe pay people to stay home it was terrible. Well, it wasn't very trickled down because the billionaires did become exceedingly wealthier and the middle class took a hit ultimately. I suppose then we're looking at this on vetted capitalism. So are you, are you saying then, Tom, we should have suffered the consequences really as an economy. And we we would probably inevitably have headed into some kind of a very deep recession, maybe even a depression. And we would have to just clear everything out. And there would be at least massive short-term humanitarian pain. Are you saying that's what we should have faced? Well, I don't necessarily think that's what would have happened. If there wasn't going to be a massive bailout, I don't think you would have had these, these ham-fisted general lockdowns of, of all of society. I think that then, you know, a governor would have had to say, well, um, I'm going to wreck my economy. If I do this, mm. maybe I should take a more focused approach and protect the elderly, protect the people who are most vulnerable to this. Um, we've never reacted to a virus, much worse viruses like polo. We didn't react this mm. way. Um, it's very hard for me to even look at this like it was an honest mistake, but you know, governments do make humongous honest mistakes. So, um, you know, without the bailouts, I don't think that the lockdowns generally would have been what they were. Maybe would, we wouldn't have had to have this huge, uh, economic cataclysm, which is going to go on for years, by the way. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And, and it's a good point that if we had taken a more, um, a different approach and less bailouts and more maybe common sense or just let's pull ourselves together here. Let's not shut down every mom and pop business. Ultimately, we would have taken less of an economic hit. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a valid point. I think there will be debates back and forth about whether some government intervention was actually needed. But your point really is that there's just far too much government. And now we see it again with the uh, ham-fisted approach on, on COVID and the vaccines. Yeah, it looks like uh, the courts are actually going to uphold this. This is something I've um, also written about in the past is that, you know, just the existence of, of OSHA, even though that's only since 1970, it's in the um, image of all the New Deal agencies. And, and basically, you know, the New Deal was a revolution back in the 1930s that, um, you know, among a lot of other things, created agencies in the executive that are allowed to legislate. Now that's unconstitutional. And of course, they were all found unconstitutional the first time around until FDR threatened to um, pack the courts with judges who, you know, <laughs> agreed with him. He eventually kind of got his way with that threat and turned over one judge to approve this sort of thing. 
And when they created OSHA, um, it was the same thing. We're going to let this this agency, unelected bureaucrats, write what we they call regulations. That's really legislating, and no one votes on it. And that's how Biden tried to go with this mandate. But it looks like it might be struck down. There's a stay right now yeah. by the courts until they can um, uh, come to a full decision. I guess my only, from what I've read about it, my only problem is there's two very important concepts that they're they're considering. One is the non-delegation doctrine that says, well, you know, the the Congress can't delegate its legislative authority to the um, to the executive. Well, that boat's already sailed. Uh, you know, if, if if Congress can make a law saying you got to have a hard hat on when you're on your job site, I mean, no one might object to that, but they're legislating. So I don't see that the substantive difference between making them get, you know, making you get a vaccine if you're on a work site, they're going to go in the way we like, but the, the constitutional question is still there. And the other question is, how is this interstate commerce? You go to work, you put in your eight hours, you come home, you haven't crossed any state lines, you haven't even left the address of your employer. This is not interstate commerce. You know, there was a great essay in the 1940s called The Revolution Was About the New Deal by a guy named Garrett Garrett. And he said, look, it's over. The revolution happened and this is how it happened. Um, we got to take another hard look at what we let the executive branch do. There were two leaders in our history on both sides of the aisle, John F. Kennedy on the one hand, and then you had Reagan, and both of them talked about the power of the individual, ultimately. Kennedy says, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And then Reagan, many, many years later, said government is not the answer. Government is the problem. That speaks to your point. Where do you see the, the country headed with all this huge debt, with the the, the uh, overreach of government as you see it. Uh, we just spent six trillion now. We have the infrastructure bill and the build back better, four trillion, 30 trillion in national debt, unfunded mandates across the states uh, with huge global debt that's growing. It's at record levels compared to the financial crisis. And yet we're all still standing. But you just wonder, are we on the almost near the edge of the cliff? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great question. You know, obviously, this cannot end well. Um, when it will end depends on a lot of things. You have to remember, you know, in a global economy, we have other governments around the world behaving much the same way. And uh, a lot of this depends on people accepting the dollar. Um, and there is an argument that says, look, the dollar is terrible. You know, they've devalued it. But it's still the healthiest horse in the glue factory, so to speak, yeah. and, um, because people have to use something, right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, and it's not just inflation; it's not just driving prices higher, which it does. Um, you know, prices fell throughout the 19th century, so that's that's the way uh, economies really work. Is as you get more productive and produce more stuff, um, they get it gets cheaper. So this. Um, Rising prices throughout all of our lives is completely a monetary phenomenon, as, as uh, uh, Milton Friedman said. But um, you know, it does other things too. It it props up unproductive behavior. So, you know, at the turn of this century, in addition to the Patriot Act and all the attacks on our civil liberties, we just decided, you know, rich people aren't going to take losses anymore. And the minute they start taking losses, we bail them out with more. And so what, what does that do? It keeps people employed in, 
in, in places where they're producing products that there isn't real demand for. And it just keeps it, it, it no, it doesn't, it doesn't gut us out and, and, and kill us, but it makes us increasingly less productive on the margin. And it also keeps us as consuming just a little more than we produce year after year after year. And then sooner or later, there is this big, big correction and it's always ugly and it's unnecessary. Um, you know, the, the free market would solve all of this and it used to do that. Well, I think it's so built into our dynamic as a system in America that the next time there's some tremors on Wall Street over a several days is sustained and all hell breaks loose and the commentator says, yeah, we're headed for a dive here. Um, I bet, and I wouldn't be surprised that the Fed will be back in printing more money. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, they're they're kind of between a rock and a hard place now because we are seeing some price inflation, um, and I really got to say that it's not completely monetary because you know ordering businesses to close for months and months and months and and just disrupting supply chains. You can't just flip a switch and turn them on again. So yeah. some of it is that. Some of it is the monetary. Uh, principle. Um, but, you know, yeah, there is some limit after you start printing too much, you know, that starts eating into uh, earnings. And then the Fed has got to try and curb the price inflation. When they do that, of course, you know, then you get corrections. So they're going to run into a wall somewhere where there's no good choice. And when that will be this next year, Five years from now, it's hard to say, but it's going to happen. Are you doing any book signings for your new book, An Anti-State Christmas? I, I do have a paperback version, and um, I may be out doing some things probably regionally um, uh, up here. I'm in Western New York. I go, I drive west to get into Canada. That's what I always tell people if you want to know about where I am. But So I might be out there doing a few events, but mostly online, mostly interviews, and of course, at my website. Yeah, so far, I've had uh, some some very nice comments. It hasn't been out very long. Uh, we just started promoting it um, yesterday. So um, uh, been on a, a couple of shows that uh, people have, have recommended it. And uh, hey, um, you've got nothing to lose. You can download the book, the PDF for free and decide whether you want to buy a few paperback copies for uh for Christmas presents makes a great stocking stuffer. Sure. Uh, tell us your website. TomMullenTalksFreedom.com. And, and you, you have your all... own podcast. Yes. Uh, uh, first episode was also yesterday. So <laughs> there's a lot going on here in, in uh, uh, Western <laughs> New York and Tom Mullen land. Uh, but you know, for people that are familiar with my writing, I've been doing that for 14 years now. I can't believe it's been that long. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. That's what it seems to be all about. And it's been great having you as a guest on my show, Tom Mullen. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 4699-973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.